and thank you for listening to True Crime Cam. It's been a couple weeks. I took some time off. I had a friend come into town. Uh, I spent a lot of time outdoors in the mountains, literally touching grass, and it was great, but I'm back. I feel like I say that every other month. Anyways, this week we are looking at one of the oldest cold case disappearances in Fort Worth, Texas. Three young girls vanished without a trace nearly 50 years ago. 17-year-old Mary Rachel Arnold Trelisa, who went by Rachel, 14-year-old Lisa Renee Wilson, who went by Renee, and 9-year-old Julie Ann Mosley, who went by Julie. People have a lot of different theories about this case, and it seems like there's no general consensus on how it all played out. So we're just going to jump right into it, and by the end of this episode, you might be leaning one way or another when you ask yourself, was this the work of a complete stranger? Was it someone they knew or trusted? Or did these girls leave on their own? We don't have the answers as of the time of this recording, but hopefully one day we will. Rachel Arnold and her sister Deborah Arnold had a special bond. They were both afraid of their hot-headed father, Raymond, who was dying of cancer and would never reach the age of 40. They also nearly married the same man, Tommy Trelisa. Deborah was in high school when she met Tommy, a divorced father in his early 20s, who already had a two-year-old son. The pair were briefly engaged, but Deborah claimed, quote, it wasn't a real engagement. It was during this relationship that Tommy met Deborah's younger sister, Rachel. And apparently this is where the real romance blossomed. Tommy and Rachel married in the summer of 1974, shortly before Rachel was set to start her senior year at Southwest High School. In December of that year, Deborah split from her boyfriend and decided to briefly move in with the newlywed couple. Despite having a romantic history with Tommy, her sister's current husband, he and Deborah both said there was no issues with this new living arrangement. Everything was perfectly fine. On the morning before Christmas Eve, Rachel woke up early to do some holiday shopping and asked her sister Deborah to come along, but Deborah wanted to sleep in. Rachel then called up 14-year-old Renee Wilson. Despite their three-year age gap, the girls were longtime friends. The Wilson and Arnold families had known each other for years and periodically took all of their children on camping trips. Renee agreed to go shopping and shared the exciting news. Earlier that morning, after arriving to her grandmother's house, her boyfriend surprised her with a promise ring and vowed to love her forever. Terry was just one year older than Renee and lived across the street from Renee's grandmother's house. And because Renee spent a majority of her time there when her mother was at work, she grew close to Terry and all of the Mosley siblings. When Rachel arrived to pick up Renee, the girls asked Terry to tag along, but he too had other plans. His nine-year-old sister, Julianne, however, desperately wanted to join the older girls on this shopping trip, but she had to ask for permission first. Her mother recalled, quote, I remember that Julie called and wanted to go to Seminary South. I said, no, you don't have any money. You just stay home. I knew Renee and her mother, but I really didn't know Rachel. But Julie kept whining about she wouldn't have anybody to play with. 
I finally gave in, but I told her to be home by six, end quote. This wouldn't be a problem because Renee also needed to be back by 4 p.m. so she could attend a Christmas party with Julie's brother, Terry. And of course, she would want to be back by that point because he had just given her a promise ring that morning. So in Rachel's Oldsmobile 98, the trio set out shortly before noon. After a quick stop at the Army-Navy store to pick up some gifts, the girls finally arrived at Seminary South. Let's talk about the Seminary South Shopping Center for a little bit. It opened its doors in March of 1962. It stretched across 85 acres of land and sat at a busy intersection of Seminary Drive and South Freeway. 900,000 square feet of floor space and 45 acres of paved parking made it the largest shopping center in Texas and the Southwest at the time. When more malls started popping up soon after, Seminary South couldn't compete. Sears sold to another company in 1985, and the center continued to lose all of its major stores by the late 90s. The name was changed to Fort Worth Town Center, and in 2004 changed a final time to La Grande Plaza de Fort Worth, and caters largely to a Hispanic clientele. When the Fort Worth trio arrived, though, on December 23, 1974, Seminary South was still at its peak. Thousands of people were doing their last-minute holiday shopping. Rachel parked her car on the upper-level lot near the Sears, and what happened from there can only be pieced together by eyewitness accounts. It can only be theorized by friends, family, and investigators. Hours go by, 6 p.m. is slowly approaching, and no one has seen the Fort Worth trio. So their families start frantically searching the shopping center. And it was around 6 p.m. that all the fathers of the girls find Rachel's car still parked exactly as she had left it. The doors were locked. The Christmas presents they had bought were still inside. According to one of the mothers, apparently the fathers had brought shotguns and were literally guarding Rachel's car, waiting for them to return or see if they could find anything suspicious while the mothers walked through the shopping center and got them to make an announcement like, hey, where is Julie, Rachel, and Renee? And as time continued to pass, none of the girls showed up, and that is when they finally made the decision to file a missing persons report. The families called local hospitals, they called friends, acquaintances, anyone they could think of, and no one had seen the girls. The following morning, police announced that there was no reason to suspect foul play, but they made a note that none of these girls had run away before, so this behavior was unusual, and the parents believed that even if they had run away, there would be no reason to bring along nine-year-old Julie and bring her into the situation. Less than 24 hours after the Fort Worth trio disappeared, on Christmas Eve, a letter arrived that would seemingly confirm police's theory of the trio running away, but this attempt at clarity only muddied the investigation even more. The most intense part of any missing persons case is the first 48 hours. This letter was most likely an attempt to delay investigators from taking serious action. It might have been an attempt to calm the Fort Worth trio's loved ones and give whoever was behind it more time. More time to do what? No one knows for sure. On Christmas morning, the Fort Worth Star-Telegram stated the letter was evidently written hurriedly with a ballpoint pen, 
and came in an envelope that had been addressed in pencil. A journalist for the paper, Mary Rogers, gives a great description of this letter. The letter was, quote, addressed to Rachel's young husband, but the name on the envelope was a formal Thomas A. Trelisa, not the familiar Tommy, she always called him. Rachel's name was scrawled in the upper left-hand corner of the envelope. There was no city name on the postmark, only a blurred postal service number, 76083. Curiously, the three appears to be backward. Maybe it is an unfinished eight, or perhaps the last two digits of the stamp were hand-loaded, as private investigator Dan James believes, and it is supposed to be 38. If it is 38, then it may have been stamped in Eliasville near Throckmorton. If it is 76088, then the letter may have been posted in Weatherford. The letter was on a sheet of paper wider than the envelope. Written in a childish scrawl, it read, I know I'm going to catch it, but we just had to get away. We're going to Houston. See you in about a week. The car is in the Sears upper lot. Love, Rachel. The original L on Rachel's name had been a short loop that looked more like an E. The writer had gone back over it, making it a taller loop. Rachel's mother, Fran, never believed the letter came from her daughter. Rachel's husband, Tommy Trelisa, agrees. While much of that day and the night before are a blur in his memory, Tommy is certain about the letter. He picked it up out of the mailbox himself, he says. He believes the letter was sealed. He doesn't remember anything else in the box that day. No Christmas cards, no flyers, no bills, just the letter. The 10 cent stamp had been canceled that morning, December 24th, 1974. A cancellation, by the way, is a marking by the postal service in which they deface the stamp so it can't be reused to send more mail. So the letter appeared to have gone through the postal service that morning after the trio disappeared. None of the girls' family members believed the letter was genuine. Julie's mother stated, quote, I don't put a lot of stock in the letter. And Renee's mother stated, quote, It just doesn't make sense. However, a police juvenile officer is quoted saying, It's her handwriting, but I don't know if she was forced to write it. She said she just had to get away for about a week. But that week came and went, with no word from the Fort Worth trio. Deborah Arnold was there when her sister's husband Tommy opened the letter and expressed that they both believed foul play was involved. Within a week of their disappearance, Tommy had put up $1,000 of his own money as a reward for information leading to the safe return of his wife, Renee and Julie. This would be roughly $6,200 today. He told the local paper, quote, I don't know what to think at the moment, but as each day passes, I get more and more nervous. On January 1st, 1975, Rachel Trelisa's father received a phone call from an acquaintance claiming he saw the trio shortly before they disappeared. The unnamed man said he saw them in a record store department at Seminary South. He said some words to Rachel, she responded, and he also noticed another person who appeared to be with them. It's unknown who this other person was. The article doesn't say if it was a male or female either. That same evening, Rachel's father and other relatives of the girls traveled to Dallas to speak with a psychic. Renee Wilson's uncle stated, quote, We talked with him for about four hours. He told us a few things which are beginning to match up and help us remember some of the girls' friends who might know something. The psychic asked Rachel's father if $150 meant anything to him. 
he responded that there was $150 in savings bonds that were missing from Rachel's car. That information was given to police immediately, but nothing so far has come from it. By the end of January 1975, a month after the girls disappeared, the reward had increased to over $2,000, and their family started the process of distributing over 50,000 flyers, pleading for the public's help. By the spring of that year, the family of the missing girls grew tired of the lack of progress police had made, so they turned to a private investigator, John Swaim. In late March, he started routinely posting in the classifieds, asking anyone with information about the missing girls to come forward, along with his phone number and a promise that any information received would be confidential. He also held a press conference where he criticized police for not handing over the case file on the missing girls. A few hours after this, the police chief called him personally and gave him a verbal briefing of all their information. Swaim said the information was, quote, very good, but didn't point to any suspects directly. A little over a week later, he announced a giant search in two South Texas counties. Swaim claimed he received a tip from an unnamed source that the Fort Worth girls had been killed and hidden beneath a bridge near Port Lavaca. It turns out that Fort Worth police had already received a similar tip in February, and a search had already been conducted. Swaim said that the water was still two or three feet deep at that point, making the previous search more difficult. After six hours of searching by over a hundred volunteers, the search was called off. John Swaim told reporters that he now believes the girls may have willingly run away from home. In addition to this private investigator, the families turned to psychics for help. In August of 1975, the Fort Worth Star detailed some of their experiences with these psychics. Since Christmas, all three households have received mail from every manner of psychic, seer, and crank. But as Miss Wilson put it, quote, When you're desperate, you'll do just about anything. I've got a stack of letters that high that I've written them, she said, spreading her hands. She said she lost three blouses to psychics who requested a piece of her daughter's clothing. She was wearing a necklace belonging to Renee, which, she said, had been mailed all over the country. About 60% of the psychics nationwide claim a blue hippie van is involved. The same percentage believe the girls traveled north, not south, as the note said. One woman told the families the girls' bodies were in a shallow grave near a creek in Mansfield. Rachel and Renee's mothers, along with Rachel's sister Deborah, walked several miles of a creek bed in February, following a map the psychic had prepared. Rachel's mother recalled, quote, At one point where one of the girls was supposed to have been, Deborah reached down in the water and pulled up the skull of a pig. The very next day after this article was printed, a 28-year-old man was arrested. John Swaim had received several tips about this man in relation to the Fort Worth trio. Shortly before 17-year-old Rachel Trelisa vanished, she applied to a job at a store in Fort Worth. The 28-year-old suspect not only worked at that store Rachel applied to, but he also at one point lived in her neighborhood and moved shortly before Rachel got married. This suspect also drives a car that fits the description of one seen parked near Rachel's home the day she and the other girls disappeared. Now let's talk about the tip that led to this man's arrest. A 15-year-old girl and her 18-year-old sister had been receiving obscene phone calls from someone the last two years. They didn't know who the man was until the 15-year-old convinced the man to give her his name and address. With confirmation of this man's identity, the parents of the girls contacted police 
and private detective John Swaim. I'm not sure if this family knew this suspect had some sort of connection to the Fort Worth Trio case, or if they just wanted John Swaim to look into this guy for the safety of their daughters, but either way, Swaim starts looking into it. And that's when he learned that this suspect had harassed at least six women who applied to this job, the same job Rachel Trelisa had applied to. All of these women were receiving obscene phone calls on a regular basis from the same 28-year-old suspect. Now knowing that this suspect had a connection to the Fort Worth trio, Detective Swaim sets up a devious plan. He gets this 15-year-old girl to set up a meeting at a shopping center in Fort Worth for 1 p.m. to trick this man into coming. A 28-year-old man meeting a 15-year-old girl is obviously a problem, but it would allow police to take him into custody and potentially question him about the Fort Worth trio. Swain notified police about this plot and he went to the shopping center with two of his own employees. Two Fort Worth police detectives were there as well. The suspect at this point is an hour late, so the Fort Worth officers leave thinking the meeting isn't going to happen. The suspect then ends up calling the 15-year-old girl saying he was running late and that he'll be there by 2.30 p.m. The suspect arrived before police could come back, so Swaim and his men detained the 28-year-old until police could arrive. Fort Worth police eventually came back and they took the man into custody for investigation of harassment. And this 28-year-old man apparently already had a record. He'd received a five-year probated sentence for indecent exposure, which means this man intentionally showed his genitals in public. Detective Swain told journalists that it appears this suspect was using his position at the store to obtain names and phone numbers of young women who applied for jobs or were listed as references on the applications. Police were supposed to give the man a polygraph test the following afternoon, but his lawyer was able to get him out of jail before that could take place. The suspect agreed to take the test at a later date, but I cannot confirm whether or not that actually took place. And apparently nothing would ever come of this suspect. Fast forward a few months to the one year anniversary of the Fort Worth Trio's disappearance, December 23rd, 1975. There are no additional updates about the 28 year old suspect and John Swaim tells the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, quote, we have no leads. It's as if they just vanished. Fort Worth police also confirm they have no new information to provide. Over the following months, the families of the girls and private detective Swaim took every single bit of information they received seriously. Renee Wilson's father is quoted saying, after 15 or 16 months, you start checking out anything. In March of 1976, a man in Honolulu, Hawaii, who was described as a psycho and a nut, wrote a letter to the sheriff in Rising Star, Texas. In this letter, the man, quote, carefully described how the girl had been killed and placed in brush off Texas 26, three miles east of Rising Star. Rising Star is roughly two hours southwest of Fort Worth. The sheriff and roughly 40 officers conducted a five and a half hour search of the area because this quote-unquote psychic made his identity known and wrote in such detail they couldn't not take it seriously. Detective Swaim thought it was completely absurd though, and it turns out he was right. This is what the sheriff had to say to the media after the failed search. Quote, he said they were dumped out here near a gas well. He said they weren't buried. How he was supposed to know all of this, I don't know. 
He sounds to me like somebody who ought to be investigated. The only interesting things we found were some old animal bones. We also tried to find the gas well. There are no less than a dozen gas and oil wells around that place. End quote. Four months after this failed search in July, the bones of three young individuals were found by an oil field worker in Alvin, Texas, about four and a half hours south of Fort Worth. It was initially believed the bones belonged to a male aged 15 to 17, a female aged 10 to 13, and another female aged 10 to 13. It was later determined that all the bones were that of three females. Investigators would actually return to the site the bones were found in 1981, where they unearthed more bones that led to an identification. There is some conflicting reports on whether or not it was two or three girls, but it turns out that these bones did not belong to any girls in the Fort Worth Trio case. Fast forward to December 22nd, 1976. John Swaim holds a press conference with the mothers of all three girls at his side and provides an update on the case. And this is how Ken Hammond described the revelation for the Fort Worth Star. Quote, private detective John Swaim today announced he has been contacted by a man acting as an intermediary for someone who may know the whereabouts of three young girls who disappeared from Fort Worth without a trace two years ago. Swaim said he had been asked by his contact to publish and broadcast an assurance by Tarrant County District Attorney Tim Curry that the informant would not be prosecuted. Swaim said he received Curry's assurance of no prosecution as long as the person or persons were not involved in any criminal act in relation to the disappearance of the girls. The information so far from the contact indicates that the girls are outside Tarrant County, but Swaim said it is not known whether they are alive or dead. Swaim and the mothers stated that they believe the girls are dead. Rachel's mother, Frances, is quoted saying, we have now, after two years, come to the point we must accept the unbearable fact that our three girls have met with foul play and are no longer alive. She continued, We all know that somewhere out there, there is a person that knows the location of our daughters, and we appeal to that person to contact Fort Worth Private Detective John Swaim or the Fort Worth Police Department and give them the location of our daughters. If you do not want to contact Mr. Swaim or the Fort Worth Police Department directly, write a letter or telephone a responsible person that does not know you and ask that person to relay the information to Mr. Swaim or the police department. It has been a long two years for us and we are not interested in people being prosecuted or going to jail. We only hope someone will come forward with information that will lead us to where our girls are and put an end to this terrible nightmare of two years. For the next three years, the Fort Worth Trio case didn't have any new developments or leads and would only come back into the media spotlight under some distressing information. Private detective John Swaim, who was hired by the girl's family to work on the case, had died. On October 19, 1979, Swaim's landlord found him semi-conscious in his apartment around 2.30 in the afternoon. She called police who responded and were told by Swaim that he didn't want to go to the hospital. Police confiscated a bottle of Quaaludes that Swaim had been washing down with whiskey before they were forced to leave. Nine hours later, Swaim's siblings went to his apartment after failing to reach him by phone. They found Detective Swaim lying on the floor of his living room, deceased. He had been dead for several hours. More pills and an empty whiskey bottle were found by his side. Relatives told police that he had been depressed about a divorce and business problems. He was 35 years old. 
Apparently, Swaim had been arrested a year prior for public intoxication by Fort Worth police and started a quote-unquote war with them because of it. Swaim, quote, went to the police station every night for several days, taking photographs of patrol cars illegally parked and insisting they be ticketed. A hearing had also been scheduled for the end of October to discuss possibly suspending John Swaim's detective license for improper advertisements in the Yellow Pages. Apparently, Swaim was not listing his principal business address in the Yellow Pages, which is required by state law. Four complaints about Swaim's behavior had also been filed to the board, but he was never found guilty of any charges. A detective who investigated these complaints never found solid proof, but said, quote, It was rumored throughout the industry that Swaim was not above bugging a telephone or burglarizing a private residence. And they included a story where Detective John Swaim had, in fact, went inside a woman's apartment and did so pretty much illegally, but they couldn't, for a fact, determine that he had done so illegally. So... Swaim definitely went above the law and some of his behavior was shady, but he did put all of his effort into solving the Fort Worth Trio case. Whether or not he was trying to solve it out of the goodness of his heart or to ultimately get a career boost is still up in the air. A man who worked for Wayne for eight years told this to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, quote, He spent two years investigating their disappearance, spending more than $20,000 of his own money, because Swaim felt the children were still alive and the publicity from finding the girls would give his career a boost. He did it for the publicity he thought he would get. Being a detective was it for him, and he felt this could be his big case. The article goes on to say, quote, Some police accused Swaim of taking advantage of the grief of the parents and milking them for every dollar he could get. A former colleague also claimed that Swaim often boasted that as personal insurance, he had compiled damaging information blackmail on almost every Fort Worth politician and law enforcement official he ever held a grudge against, and even some he did not. Detective Swaim was definitely not a man you wanted to be on the bad side of or that you wanted working against you. His death was initially believed to be an accidental overdose, but eventually it was ruled as a suicide. A couple months later, the five-year anniversary of the Fort Worth Trio's disappearance rolled around and more information was revealed about John Swaim's investigation and where it was going to go from there. Apparently, Swaim took the case for a $500 retainer fee, which is about $1,300 today, and with the understanding that the reward fund would go to him if he found the girls. After Swaim's death, Renee Wilson's mother contacted his family members and asked that the pictures of their daughters be returned. That's when she learned, quote, according to the private investigator's last request, his files were burned. Among them was information concerning the girls. So all of the information, details, tips, and images that John Swaim had collected about this case over the course of two years he investigated it were completely destroyed and they were not passed on to the family or police, which is absolutely devastating and makes John Swaim look even more shady that all of his files were destroyed, all of his life's work. The major case investigator who was now assigned to this investigation told a reporter that the trail went cold in the Seminary South parking lot. He said, quote, We've been a lot of places and made a lot of investigations, but we never had gotten them off that parking lot. 
Rachel Trelisa's car was found parked and locked in the upper-level lot near the Sears. No one saw the girls leave. The only way they could have left the shopping center is by foot or in someone else's vehicle. The only clue police have of that being a possibility is a secondhand account from a store clerk. Quote, the woman told the store clerk she saw three girls being forced into a yellow pickup near the Buddy's store at the center. She described the truck as having lights on top of it. End quote. Police were never able to locate the woman who told this story to the clerk, so they weren't able to ask her any additional questions. So that the story the clerk had was everything they could go off of, which was essentially not much. The theory that these young girls were abducted by a stranger is what most people believed at the time, especially Rachel's mother, who said, quote, A lot of people think they left with somebody they knew, but I'll always think, until the day I die, that these girls were taken. This same year, Rachel's family was approached by a man who claimed he was a witness to the girl's abduction. This is how the Fort Worth Star described the man's story. Quote, Waiting in his car, the man said he saw a Hispanic man wrestling a teenage girl into a light blue van. The girl was screaming, help me, help me. But when the witness sprinted over to help, the Hispanic man brushed him aside, saying he was butting into a family argument. Just then, a younger girl jumped from the back of the van, only to be pursued and shoved back inside by a second Hispanic man, the witness said. Rachel's mother said she believed this man's story because he never changed the details and felt like this man was being honest. On the 20th anniversary of the Fort Worth trio's disappearance, December 23rd, 1994, their family members spoke to the Fort Worth Star. And I just want to read this entire little article to give y'all an idea of how the families were feeling at that time. And this is by Bill Hanna. For the families of Rachel, Trelisa, Lisa Renee Wilson, and Julie Ann Mosley, the nightmare has been never-ending. Twenty years ago, on December 23, 1974, the girls went Christmas shopping at Seminary South Mall and were never seen again. It's like the earth swallowed them up and now they're gone, said Rayanne Mosley, the mother of Julie Mosley, nine years old at the time. Although a handwritten letter supposedly written by Rachel Trelisa arrived the day after their disappearance and tips from strangers came sporadically throughout the years, relatives really have no idea what happened. We never had one good lead. We never had one good piece of evidence to go on. It was bungled from the beginning. Several years ago, a man came from out of the blue to our house and said the girls were in a cult. I'll tell you, it's been terrible, said Judy Wilson, the mother of Lisa Renee Wilson, who was 14 when she disappeared. Instead, family members have been left to speculate on what happened and cope with the frustration over the way police initially handled the investigation. When the girls failed to return home that afternoon, the families began searching. They found the girls' car about 6 p.m. that day, but police handled the case as if the girls had run away from home. Trelisa's sister, Deborah Strayer, who turned down the girls' invitation to go shopping that morning, said she is still angry about the investigation. We all have a lot of anger and a lot of resentment toward the Fort Worth Police Department. They didn't run away. They vanished. We don't even care about prosecution. We don't care about guilt anymore. We want somebody to contact these families so we can put some closure on it. That would be the best Christmas present of all." End quote. And that is the end of that article. Five years later, in November of 1999, a local private investigator offered a $25,000 reward 
for information leading to the arrest and conviction in this case. That man is Dan James, who had apparently been working on the case since the beginning. It was around this time that the younger brother of Rachel, Rusty Arnold, really started getting involved in this investigation. He was just 11 years old when Rachel vanished. He told the Fort Worth Star, quote, There are some new things that we're working on, and we believe that this reward will rattle some cages. This is the most hopeful we've been in 25 years. Less than two months after this article was published, Mary Rogers wrote a three-page spread about the case in the Fort Worth Telegram. And for the first time ever, it revealed some shocking allegations against one of the girl's very own family members. This allegation comes from Rachel's brother, Rusty, and is against their older sister, Deborah. In January of 2000, Rusty was 36 years old, working in Fort Worth as a roofing contractor. And when he wasn't doing that, he was trying to solve his sister's disappearance. But the links in which he was going to do that was apparently causing a lot of stress between him, his sister, and mother. And this is what the article says. Rusty's childhood interest has developed into a zealous preoccupation. Tommy's letter holds particular interest to him. He is certain that Rachel did not write the letter. He is just as sure that Rachel, and only Rachel, is alive, and that it is only a matter of time, perhaps even days, before he finds her. Following the disappearance, there were several reports that the two older girls had been spotted at different locations, a gas station, near a Walmart, in a country store. If Rusty dismissed these reports as shams in the beginning, he became convinced that they were genuine after meeting private investigator Dan James. And that is the investigator who put up the new $25,000 reward for the case months prior, which is, as of today, no longer available. James says he has been following the case since 1975. Rusty met him 20 years later. Rusty found James's name in a random search of the Yellow Pages as he looked for a private investigator. To Rusty's surprise, James already knew plenty about the case. Better yet, James seemed as interested in solving the riddle of the disappearance as he did. Never hired by the families, James says he hasn't received a penny in compensation for his work. He has received death threats from anonymous callers, warning him away from this case, he says. According to James, several credible witnesses say they've spotted Rachel since the disappearance. One was in 1998 around Christmas, he says. Rusty and James believe that Rachel visits Fort Worth during Christmas season each year. James is careful with his words, but maintains that someone is shrouding and manufacturing evidence and what he says was at first an effort to keep the two older girls away. Now he thinks only Rachel survives. He is evasive about what he thinks happened or who he believes can be held accountable. I believe that the person facilitates and maintains an effort to keep Rachel, Arnold, Trelisa away from Fort Worth. I believe that Renee Wilson is not alive. I believe that something dreadfully wrong, and probably a fatality, occurred involving Julianne Mosley, he says. Rusty buys James's deductions, but neatly sidesteps on the record comments himself. Yes, he has a theory. No, he won't discuss it. Except to say that someone close to one of the girls had something to do with the disappearance. Deborah is more candid. I know he blames me. I know he thinks I had something to do with it. Rusty thinks this letter that Tommy got the next day, he thinks I wrote it. I didn't write this letter. I don't know who did. I don't know what happened to my sister. Maybe white slavery. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. I have nothing to hide.
the comment about white slavery. I don't know what that means. I don't understand why that is why she said that so casually. I'm not sure. I don't know. The article goes on. Tears filled her eyes when she talks about her sister and the ruined relationship with her brother. It's hard enough to deal with it that my sister is not here anymore. I had to go through lots and lots of counseling because of all the things that happened in my life, she says. Rusty and Deborah and their mother live on the same South Side Street, only a few doors apart, but the ties that bind this family are in tatters. Their relationships are coming apart at the seams. Fran, their mother, blames James for poisoning Rusty's mind and says her family has been destroyed, end quote. After reading Deborah's response, Rusty and several others actually wrote her a letter. This letter was published to MissingTrio.com, a website created by Rusty in 2005 to keep track of his sister's case and bring publicity. The website is no longer active and the domain is currently for sale. This letter is dated January 11th, 2000, and this is what it says. Dear Deborah, we read your statement in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram on January 9th, 2000. You indicated that you had nothing to hide. If your statement is true, we beg and plead with you to fully cooperate with the Fort Worth Police Department and the FBI. Please complete the polygraph testing and answer all questions. Deborah, please keep in mind, you also have a sister missing. End quote. This letter is signed by the mother of Julie Mosley, both parents of Renee Wilson, and Rusty Arnold. I'm not sure if authorities have compared Deborah's handwriting to the letter that Rachel allegedly sent, but it has been examined by the FBI at least three times, and each time the results were inconclusive. Today, we still don't know who wrote that letter. Exactly a year after this article was published, Fort Worth police officially reopened the case and assigned homicide detective Tom Bocher. In 2009, he stated, The case has so many possible suspects, but there hasn't been any new information. It's still an active and open case. He also said it's possible that whoever is responsible for the girl's disappearance could be dead. By this point, Fran had lost contact with her daughter's husband, Tommy, who moved away from the Fort Worth area. He's since remarried and had other children. The rest of the girl's family still live in Fort Worth, but they too have slowly drifted apart and moved on. She stated, quote, You have to move on, but we all still want to know. It seems as if Rusty Arnold is the only direct family member who is actively working on the case, at least publicly. He told the Fort Worth Star in 2017 that he believes Rachel's letter was mailed in Throckmorton, Texas, a town roughly 130 miles northwest of Fort Worth. Rusty said, quote, I really miss my sister. I will keep looking for answers as long as it takes. Rusty has been true to his word. In 2018, he rallied the community and raised $15,000 to search the Benbrook Lake. This lake is about eight miles from the shopping center where the trio disappeared. And if you listen to the previous episode that I did, you might remember that this is the same lake in which 17-year-old Carla Walker's body was found nearby. Carla was abducted on Valentine's Day, 1974, the same year the Fort Worth trio disappeared. 
A 77-year-old man was convicted for her murder last year after DNA evidence was retested in the case. Texas Monthly published a lengthy article about the case and her killer and mentioned numerous unsolved killings in Fort Worth with similarities to that case. However, Texas Monthly did not mention the Fort Worth trio. So back to Rusty's focus on Benbrook Lake. He told the Fort Worth Star in 2018 that he and volunteer divers are focused on this body of water because they believe one of the three vehicles submerged in the lake belongs to a person of interest in the case who knew the girls. Rusty didn't disclose the name of the person, but he said, quote, At the same time the girls went missing, we believed the vehicle he was driving also disappeared. We sat around coming up with theories, and we discovered that the person of interest lived within five miles of Benbrook Lake at the time. It's a hunch. The first car they successfully pulled from the lake was a 1976 Lincoln, meaning this car was manufactured two years after the trio disappeared, so there's no way it could have been involved in their disappearance. The second vehicle was recovered a month later, but a forensic team determined it wasn't related to the case at all. Two years later, in July of 2020, they determined that the third car was too fragile to pull out of the lake because it would break apart. They decided to search the vehicle themselves instead at the bottom of the lake, but nothing of substance was found. Rusty is quoted saying, I'm not surprised. I'm used to being let down like that. As long as we got something else to do, I'm going to do it. Rusty and volunteers have decided to search several other lakes that could be related to the case. As of November 2022, Frances Langston, the mother of Rachel, is the last surviving parent of the Fort Worth trio. This December 23rd will mark 49 years since the Fort Worth trio vanished. And despite it being nearly 50 years since the girls disappeared, it seems like we're not even one step closer to finding out what really happened. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode, and a special shout out to the new Patreon members, Esperanza S and Sig T. Thank you all for becoming Patreon members. If you want to hear about recent cases in the news, I talk a lot about that on my Instagram and TikTok at TrueCrimeCam. And if you're on Spotify or YouTube, please leave a comment on what case you want me to cover next. Thank you all so much for listening again, and I hope you all have a good day, evening, or night. Goodbye.